That was so beautiful. Thank you. Hello, Advent Hope. It's been a while. I used to come here um, back in the day. I've been aging. Um, but all of you look great. All of you that I knew before, you look the same age. Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to fly out. <clears throat> and thankfully, uh, I, well, then I, all of a sudden I realized, oh, I need to get a flight. And I found a flight for $48.99. And I thought, I'm going to save Advent Hope some money. This is great. I bought the flight. And then yesterday, when I woke up, I thought, I'd never heard of that airline before. What is this airline? And I looked it up. And just so you know, context, I have really bad flight anxiety. Like, even on the best airlines, I struggle with flight anxiety. I know that flying is safe. I know that it's highly regulated, but my nervous system will always feel like flying is very dangerous. There is something very unnatural about being catapulted through the air in a giant metal tube, and my nervous system feels this keenly. And if I am sitting next to someone I know, I will grab their arm, and if I'm by myself, I have little rituals that I do to help calm myself down. Well, yesterday, I look up the airline. Lo and behold, there's all these concerns about the airline mention. They only have four planes in all of the United States in their fleet. And they have old planes. They have seven, uh, Boeing 757s, which are almost as old as me. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to get on this plane. I tried to find a different plane, but I couldn't. So I went, and I was like, if I perish, I perish. <laughs> but I have to come talk to Abner Hope. I got on the plane. It looked ancient. Like, everything was outdated. The fonts were outdated. Someone went into the lavatory and came out, and the door wasn't closing. It was making this creaking noise. And the flight attendant was like, oh, it's OK. And I was like, is it? Or this is this like a, does this represent the state of the entire plane and our impending doom? And it was a very noisy, turbulent flight during landing. I heard sounds I've never heard before on an airplane. Uh, someone was screaming in the back. And finally we landed and I thought, whew, I made it. Everything's going to be fine from here on out. Well, this morning. I uh, left my bedroom. I was staying at my friend's house. My friend wasn't home. And uh, unfortunately, I locked myself out of my bedroom. And so it was about 8 o'clock, and my phone was in my bedroom, my computer, my presentation, my clothes. Everything was in my bedroom. <clears throat> my friend was gone. I didn't know what to do. My hair was stopping wet. All I had was my pajamas. So I ran across the town to Calvin's house, Calvin from Australia. And I pounded on his door and kept ringing the doorbell until he woke up. And thankfully, he had his phone. And we called the locksmith. Uh, we tried to drill the door off, but it didn't work. So the locksmith came. And I was able to get in just in time to get dressed. And I didn't fix my hair. But here I am to talk to you. <laughs> and so I hope you appreciate, uh, not to be manipulative, but I hope you have some appreciation for the toll that this has taken on my nerves. And I hope that you will show your appreciation by paying very close attention to my message today. <laughs> OK, so before I uh, give the sermon, 
Um, I want to tell you a little bit about something I'm very excited about that I've been researching in my master's project, and that's animal welfare in Ellen White's writings and teachings. Okay, I can only talk about this for a few minutes, but I'm excited. So I'm sure we're all familiar. Well, this is La Melinda. Uh, we know about Ellen White. We know about vegetarianism. We know that Ellen White promoted vegetarianism for human health. She talked about the benefits to uh, human physical and spiritual health. And because of that, uh, I think the latest data that I saw, I'd love to know if there was more recent data, but an estimated 51% of Adventists in North America and 19% of Adventists globally are vegetarian. Um, However, something that hasn't been emphasized very much when Adventists talk about vegetarianism or when we talk about White's advocacy of vegetarianism is animal welfare. However, from the beginning, when Ellen White wrote about vegetarianism starting in 1864, um, after she had had the comprehensive health vision in 1863, she mentioned uh, the impact of meat eating on animals. And she wrote with great sensitivity about animals. Now, I was curious about this um, because I had read in Ministry of Healing, for example, some statements about animals and how um, meat eating impacts animals. And so I decided to look at this in my master's research. And what I found uh, was I found a lot more than I thought I would. Um, the historical context is that the animal rights movement was developing in the United States um, in the mid-19th century. And interestingly, many of the same Christians who had been involved in abolitionism efforts um, then became involved in animal welfare. And they appealed to some of the same arguments uh, about sentience, about um, individual rights to protect the rights of animals. Um, and that's when the first animal rights legislation was uh, introduced in the United States. Um, and you can find in early Adventist periodicals in the 1860s, or as early as, it, as the 1860s, um, mentions of animal welfare, how people should treat their horses, um, the impact of meat eating on animals, bullfighting, etc. Um, and in Ellen White's personal correspondence, in some of her sermon transcripts, and in multiple things she wrote, she mentioned animals. She mentioned um, the impact of the meat industry on animals when she lived in Australia in the 1890s. Um, she would pass uh, near the stockyards in Sydney, and she personally witnessed a lot of animals suffering, um, cattle and sheep, and she wrote about that. And although her own individual efforts to become vegetarian uh, began in the early 1860s when she first started promoting vegetarianism, back in that time it was more difficult to be a vegetarian and so occasionally she would eat meat at times uh, when traveling or when her cook didn't know how to cook um, vegetarian food. Um, so occasionally she had eaten meat, although her pattern was to be vegetarian. However, um, the event that finally made her say, okay, no more meat on my table, was uh, a woman in Australia, a Catholic woman, um, confronted her about the impact of meat eating on animals. And so she wrote to Kellogg and she said, I have seen this issue in a new light and I don't want any more meat on my table. She had also, even when she was eating vegetarian food, had allowed people in her household to have meat. Um, and so she said, I, I've seen this issue in a new light and I'm gonna be more careful. So I think it's important um, because <clears throat> when we think about an Adventist philosophy of vegetarianism, um, we need to think more broadly, right? Not just, it's not just about our own health, it's about the health of animals, it's about the health of all of creation. And uh, 
currently, you know, there's a lot of people talking about the impact about meat eating being one of the biggest um, um, causes of harm to the environment, etc. So. Uh, I like to think of the Adventist philosophy of vegetarianism as compassionate eating, right? It's compassionate for our bodies, it's compassionate for the animals, it's compassionate for the environment, and we also need to be compassionate to people who eat differently than we do, right? Because people develop habits, uh, we all grow up in such extremely different environments, and um, Ellen White was so careful to uh, so that we shouldn't be the consciences of others, that we shouldn't judge others for what they eat. So compassionate eating, I think, is kind of a framework uh, that can help remind us of the most important things when it comes to food choices. So um, I wish I had more time to talk about this and to get more into specific uh, things that she wrote and said about this. Um, however, I do not. But next week, I will be with David Ashrick uh, doing an interview on this topic. We're going to have a, a long discussion about my research, what I learned, and that will be up on his YouTube channel and his Instagram Live. We'll be doing that probably next Sabbath, sometime next weekend. So if you're interested in learning more, you can look at that. Okay. Now, I would talk about that the whole time, but I got asked to share a different message with you, and I will transition to that now. <clears throat> um, first, why don't we just bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for helping me come here, even though so many things happened that made it me worry that I would, wouldn't make it. Um, thank you for the love you have for all of your creation, even the little sparrows when they fall. But thank you that you value us even more than the sparrows and that you're so deeply interested in our well-being. And Jesus, there's so many people in this room, and I think of the, the verse that says that when you saw the multitude, that you had compassion on them. And I pray that um, out of the compassion you have for the people listening today, that you would um, speak through your word, that you would work to encourage, to comfort, to guide our thoughts. Um, you know, we're talking about a difficult topic. We're talking about some of the most painful experiences that human beings go through. And so I pray that you would be with us and that your Holy Spirit would tailor make this message to the individual needs of the people here. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, just a brief warning. We're going to deal with some heavy themes in this talk. Uh, it's called The Theology of Trauma, God's Radical Response to the Mistreatment of His Children. Now, this talk came out of my own uh, story, my own struggle to find answers on this topic. Um, because, like all of us, I've experienced harm from other people. <clears throat> all of us experience harm and mistreatment. Sometimes it's much more severe and sometimes much less severe, but most of us in life have to grapple with how to process, how to forgive, how to think about um, how to heal from the sins committed against us or the sins we see committed against the people that we love. And in my 20s, I hit a point where I realized there was someone in my life that I really didn't want to forgive. And I was confused because I, had, I, I felt that I had been so deeply hurt by this person. And yet when I tried to find answers um, in church or I tried to talk to people, I felt like well, the responses I got were, yeah, you know, God cares that that happens. That's really too bad. But, you know, you need to forgive. You you need to move on. Um, don't worry about it. And so what it felt like I was hearing was, God cares, but get over it, right? Now, there are times as human beings when we 
um, exaggerate what people have done against us when, you know, we cause more pain to ourselves by the way we think about it than they actually cause to us, right? But there are other times when you're, you're really sinned against, you're really harmed. And these trite answers can be damaging and confusing, and they can misrepresent God's character. And yet it's very clear in scripture that we do need to forgive. And so I cried out to God and I was like, hey, if you want me to be a Christian, you have to help me. You have to guide me through a process where you reveal to me either you know, the theological uh, truths or life experiences that I need in order to get unstuck because I don't like the picture that I'm getting of you when I think about this and when I think about what you're expecting from me. But I know that you're good, right? And God honors this when we come to him, when we're confused about whatever it is, and we say, I know that you're good. Please show me how you're good in this way. He will do it. Well, I'm not the only person that has experienced something like this. This is a Barna study from 2019, um, assessing, practicing Christians' forgiveness experiences. And what they found was that 23% of Christians can identify someone in their life that they can't forgive, that they feel that they simply can't forgive. Now, imagine the, the spiritual anxiety that causes, right? We know God calls to forgive, but sometimes we feel like we can't forgive. And I would like to suggest that this is not only caused by bitterness, although bitterness could be one factor, but that forgiveness, in order to be properly, properly understood, biblical forgiveness has to be um, held in tension with other theological beliefs. And when that doesn't happen, we get stuck and we feel um, unable to forgive. So <clears throat> the best uh, way of describing what ended up happening for me is like a puzzle. There were different puzzle pieces that had to come together in my mind, different um, theological ideas. And each one, as each one came together, I started seeing the shape of something that was different. And I started getting a clearer picture of um, how God related to me in terms of my, you know, my experiences and my trauma and um, how what he was calling me to was actually loving. So we're gonna look in this talk at um, I think seven, six or seven different puzzle pieces. Um, some of them we'll spend more time on than others, but they are the things that helped me. And um, I just encourage you, if perhaps you have something similar to process, that you um, might consider these as well. So the first is empathy, meaning God's empathy. God feels what we feel. You guys are probably familiar with mirror neurons, right? Mirror neurons are what enable us to, um, to a small degree, experience the emotions of others. When someone cries, you feel sad. When someone stubs their toe, you feel a little bit of pain, right? God's designed us with this capacity to, um, to empathize with others and, and to a certain degree, even feel what they feel. This is especially true when it comes to parents right? This is, these are my friends, Matt and Josie Minicus. Their music is amazing. Everybody should buy all of their music. Um, and this is their daughter, Josie, the, one of the cutest girls in the world. They love her so much. And I, I watched this through their pregnancy, um, her birth, um, as she was a baby. Their, their compassion for her is basically endless. And when um, Eliza was a toddler, she developed uh, sleep terrors. Some of you are probably familiar with sleep terrors. They tend to be genetic, and it's, it's much worse than a nightmare, but sometimes little kids will have 
horrible um, sleep terrors and be thrashing around and, and terrified, and it can be very difficult to calm them down. And they, you know, hopefully eventually grow out of it. Um, but she was experiencing this, and I was over there at their house once when this happened. She was screaming. They were trying so hard to calm her down. It was so sad. Because um, you're near a little kid, like, you don't know what's happening. Um, and uh, they finally were able to calm her down. They came and talked to me. They were saying, we wish so much that it was happening to us instead. It would be so much easier to deal with if it was happening to us because it's so painful to watch your kid going through something like that. God gives us these little glimpses into parental love, into human love, um, and he wants us to apply them to our own lives and our own situations. So one of the most healing things for me was really realizing how much God empathized with the pain that I had experienced. In Isaiah 63, verses 8 to 9, speaking of the children of Israel, it says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and he personally rescued them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Imagine that. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. God has the most sensitive mirror neurons of anyone in the universe. He's the one that created neurons, right? And so we can be confident that he has deep empathy and compassion for the things that we've experienced. And that's the first puzzle piece. The second is emotion, referring to human emotion. God made us to feel. We need to have a proper understanding of human emotion, of a biblical approach to human emotions, if we're going to heal from difficult things. Now, psychologists have identified approximately five, uh, some people think there's more, but core emotions, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. Some of you may remember some of these emotions from a certain film. Um, but these are the core emotions, and what we know is that each emotion is important, right? But that the emotions need to be held in balance. So think about joy as a wonderful emotion. We need joy in our lives, right? But joy to the extreme can become mania. You, you can't, it, any emotion can be too much or too little, right? Sadness, sadness is an important emotion. We need to grieve. We need to um, reflect. We sometimes need those melancholic moments. But if we become too sad, too discouraged, too depressed, it can be very damaging. Anger is an important emotion. It can inspire us to stick up for someone or, or to um, perhaps get out of a bad situation when we're being mistreated. But to the extreme, it can cause us to do very destructive things or, or to harm others. Fear is an appropriate emotion. It can cause us to take the right risks and um, motivate us when we have a deadline. Um, but it can be very counterproductive when you're on a plane that isn't going to crash and you think it's going to crash. So fear can be crippling, but it's a, a good thing. Disgust uh, can prevent us from eating disgusting food, um, but it al can also make us snobs um, when we get disgusted by things we shouldn't be disgusted by. So. Each motion, emotion in a fallen world, in a fallen world we need 
all of these emotions. I guess in heaven, we won't need sadness and fear. Um, but we need to balance them. Now, this is also uh, something we see in the Psalms, that uh, so scholars think that an estimated between 30 and 40% of the Psalms are lament. King David would uh, vent anger, sadness to God. It was his way of emotionally processing things. However, sometimes in Christian teaching, uh, whether purposefully or not, people end up getting the idea that only a few emotions are appropriate. That joy is a good emotion, but sadness is a bad emotion, or anger is a bad emotion. Now, we need to be very careful because we need to be responsible about our emotions. But for me personally, the way that this um, thinking was harmful is that I thought that any time I felt angry about what happened to me, that that was a sign that I hadn't forgiven and that I was being sinful or feeling angry. And then I would feel condemned. And then I would get discouraged about what that said about me. I would think, oh, if, if I really... If I really loved other people, I just wouldn't have this emotional experience, right? And that was a very damaging thing to believe. So, <coughs> excuse me. I ended up uh, changing the words to Jesus loves me to be about how Jesus loves us no matter what we feel. And this is one of the ideas that really helped me when I realized that God actually had space for my very strong feelings about the situation and that he could help me work through those. So uh, the words are, not going to sing it for you, um, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Oftentimes my feelings change, still his love remains the same. Jesus loves me when I'm sad, just as much as when I'm glad. With his love, he comforts me. I am so blessed his child to be. Jesus loves me when I'm scared, he comes close because he cares. And I know when he is near, he will help me with my fear. Jesus knows when I've been wronged, when my anger feels so strong. One day he'll make all things right. I can trust him in the fight. Jesus loves and Jesus heals, and he knows just how I feel. Came to earth and felt it too. He knows all I'm going through. I just want to encourage you as you experience the wide range of human emotion that it's okay and that God can help you with whatever you're feeling. The third um, puzzle piece or theological idea that I needed clarification on was free will. God made us to choose. Now, some of you may be familiar with John Piper, a very prominent Reformed theologian who does not uh, really believe in free will. So this is what he says. God brings about all things in accordance with his will. In other words, it isn't just that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. It is rather that he himself brings about these evil aspects for his glory and his people's good. This includes, as incredible and as unacceptable as it may currently seem, God's having even brought about the Nazis' brutality and even the sexual abuse of a young child. This makes me very upset, okay? So th this is a sincere belief um, that, you know, has perpetuated through Calvinistic thinking, um, such a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty that we lose a focus on free will 
and Piper takes it as far as to say that God wanted the Holocaust to happen. Now imagine what that theology does to victims of trauma and abuse as they try to process what happened to them. There was an article in Atlantic, How Can God Allow Monsters to Prey on Children? An adult writing about how um, she went to Sunday school um, as a little kid, was taught that God was powerful, that God would protect her, um, that anything that happened was for a reason, and then started being uh, assaulted by her mother's partner, and this went on for years. And she said, I would pray and ask God to please make it stop. And I thought that I must be doing something wrong, that God must be upset at me, and that's why it wasn't stopping. <clears throat> you see how damaging these ideas, this person doesn't want anything to do with Christianity, um, how damaging these ideas can be. And that's why it's very important that we have an appropriate emphasis on free will when we think about the things that have happened to us. C.S. Lewis writes, if a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. We live in a world of the best possibilities, um, but also a world of great risk. But we need to understand that when people have sinned against us, it's because of their own choices and not because of God's will. <clears throat> the next theological idea that I needed a stronger understanding of was protection, God's work to defend. Because even though free will is very real, that doesn't mean that God has just um, left everyone to their own devices and that he's not actively trying to intervene and guide free will. Mr. Rogers, who I'm a big fan of, said, when I was a boy and would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. So he told this to little kids, when there's a tragedy, when there's a natural disaster, you feel overwhelmed, look for the helpers. And that will help your focus because you'll know that someone, that love is, love is there and then you won't feel as scared and overwhelmed. Well, I think we need to do the same thing when it comes to the war between good and evil that we find ourselves in, right? Like, it's easy to look at the world and see the, the carnage and the chaos um, and to think, what is God doing? But God has a variety of helpers. God's helpers include his spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is actively working to encourage and inspire unselfish loving choices instead of selfish choices, God's angels are working to protect. God's word is actively working to prevent abuse, to cause people to make loving choices. Civil authorities and law enforcement can also be God's helpers. People who carefully, carefully and responsibly advocate against abuse. God wants helpers in his church and in his body to be defending the oppressed. Right? So if we're willing to look for it, we'll find that God is actively engaged in many ways that we often forget about and overlook. And so part of what helped me was realizing that God was doing a lot more to help me than I realized. Recycling, God repurposes pain. This was the next idea that I needed. Okay, even though free will exists, and many things are happening in the universe that God doesn't want that are damaging. We don't have to pretend that they're good. God's sovereignty is a very real and beautiful reality, right? 
Think about the story of Joseph. Joseph experienced significant abuse and trauma. <clears throat> he's bullied by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused of sexual assault. He's imprisoned. Um, people forget about him. His, I mean, he's a miserable, miserable life. And he could be, uh, or at least he could have had a miserable, miserable life. He could have been bitter. He could have given up on God. And yet over and over in the narrative, you see it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph. And by the end of the story, you see God's completely switched it around. And despite the fact that he did not cause these selfish actions by all these people that hurt Joseph, he somehow is able to work in a powerful way. So much so that Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, but as, you, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as, as it is this day to save many people. And God... Our stories may not be as dramatic as Joseph's, but we can be confident that God can work beautiful things out of horrible situations. I've experienced this 100%. Like, some of the most difficult things that I've gone through, I had a severe eating disorder as a teenager. I was hospitalized multiple times. It was awful. And God has used that to help me minister to people in ways I wouldn't have been able to otherwise, to help me have a, a deeper and more profound appreciation of just being alive, um, to help me connect with and bond with people that I might not have, to help me understand God's love in a deeper way. Um, it's phenomenal. I'm sure there's so many stories represented uh, here of people that have gone through very difficult things, and yet God has worked uh, to bring about good. And so even though we don't want to overemphasize God's sovereignty, as John Piper and others have done, we don't want to underemphasize it either. We can have a, a healthy sense of courage and hope that God can bring good out of difficult situations. <clears throat> okay, the, t uh, the puzzle piece we're going to spend a little bit more time on is justice. We need a proper understanding of God's justice in order to be able to grapple with sin, in order to be able to forgive I'm sure you're familiar with Charles Darwin, the father of the evolutionary theory. And uh, however, fewer people realized that Darwin um, actually initially wanted to be an Anglican priest. And he uh, had plans to do that. However, there were things about Christianity that were very troubling to him. And one of those was the idea of eternal torment. Darwin wrote, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true, for if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all of my friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Imagine how our world might be different if Charles Darwin was an annihilationist. Who knows? But we can see here how bad theology causes harm. And many people have rejected Christianity because of the concept of eternal torment. Now, thankfully, as Adventists, we believe in annihilationism. However, this raises an interesting question. We know we don't want God to punish people forever, but what do we want him to do? What do we want God to do to address evil? You've probably heard of Jeffrey Epstein, who um, sexually assaulted women, including many underage girls, uh, for possibly decades, um, at least dozens, possibly hundreds of girls, covered this up and involved many people. Um, and finally, he was caught. And as you can imagine, 
these women were looking forward to some sort of justice. And yet he ended up committing suicide a month before his trial. Now this was very upsetting to some of them because um, their desire for justice didn't seem to be realized. Here's what one of them said. I will never have a sense of closure now. I'm angry that the prison could have allowed this to happen and that I and Epstein's other victims will never see him face the consequences for his horrendous actions. This stole from us the huge piece of healing that we needed to move on with our lives. Here we see that human beings have this inherent God-given desire for justice. We somehow want people to be held responsible for their actions. We don't want to live in a world where someone can just cause so much harm and then never even realize or face what they've done. Another person who, uh, from a worldly standpoint, you could say got off very easy is Adolf Hitler, um, who, of course, is responsible for the death of six million Jews, many millions other, of other people in the Holocaust, as well as many people who died in combat in World War II. Um, but as the troops were closing in on Berlin and he realized that he um, was on the wrong side of history, he just committed suicide. He never had to face the tremendous pain and trauma that he caused, the grief, the loss, he had an easy out. Do we want to live in a world where the Jeffrey Epsteins and the Adolf Hitlers never have to face what they've done? What does that say about, hum what does that say about who human beings are if we're allowed to act like that and never face it? The reality of justice, of judgment, means that God has a very high picture of what human beings can become and are capable of, <clears throat> and that he also has a very protective heart when people are hurt. Miroslav Wolf is a theologian from Yale, and he grappled with this idea of God's judgment and God's wrath, and at first he thought, man, I don't like the idea of God's wrath. I want a loving God who doesn't show wrath. But eventually he came to see it differently. He wrote, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And I think it's very important to remember here that God's wrath is very different than human wrath because human anger can so easily become selfish and destructive to find joy in the suffering of others. God's wrath isn't like, like that, but God has a deep anger against anything that hurts his creation. <clears throat> and God, the Bible teaches us that we can trust in God's wrath. For example, 
Romans 12, 19 says, do not avenge yourselves, beloved, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. When someone is abused and mistreated in, in a serious way by others, we don't just have to say, oh, don't worry about it, just forgive. You say, you can trust in God's justice. You can trust that God cares about what happened to you. That's why we don't have to take wrath into our own hands because we're trusting. But forgiveness doesn't mean to give up on justice. Forgiveness means to trust in God's justice. Martin Luther King Jr. was someone who understood this. Um, and I think that part of why he was able to remain nonviolent in his fight against injustice was because he believed in God's justice. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Meaning if we're gonna think about all of human history as an arc, we see this bent towards injustice throughout human history, and it's gonna take a long time, but it's gonna bend back towards justice because he believed that ultimately God was in charge, that God would do what was right in the end. We see even Jesus, um, when he experienced the crucifixion, was trusting in God's justice. First Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. <clears throat> Someone who I admire greatly, <clears throat> who has learned how to trust in God's justice is Rachel Den Hollander, who was one of the sexual assault victims of Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser, you may uh, be familiar with his case. He was uh, convicted of sexually assaulting 265 girls, although they think that there was more, um, as a physician for USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University over the course of several decades. And there was massive cover-up, uh, failure on every level from uh, the school to the FBI. And because of this, many people experienced significant harm. There were suicides, uh, just untold trauma. And Rachel Den Hollander was one of the person, uh, was a victim or survivor um, who brought this to the attention of the media and helped uh, kind of break this case. She's a Christian and um, she and over 150 women gave victim impact statements in court. This is something that sexual assault survivors are given the opportunity to do before the sentencing of a sexual perpetrator. So. She came to court to give her statement. <clears throat> you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It's 30 something minutes long. It's powerful. I cried and cried. But the context is that Nasser had come to court with a Bible and he had made excuses about how he was a good doctor and why did the girls keep coming back and uh, what he had done was under the guise of medical treatment. Um, and he brought his Bible and he talked about, the Bible talks about forgiveness. And this was his excuse as to why, you know, he should be given a lenient sentence. But he wasn't acknowledging what he had done. So Rachel Den Hollander stood up and here's part of what she said to him. Here we see uh, the important relationship between forgiveness and justice, okay? In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. 
It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath is poured out on men like you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Okay, so this is powerful. You see that Rachel Den Hollander understood that the forgiveness that God was requiring of her was placed in the context of God's justice. Forgiveness doesn't mean to give up on justice. It means to trust in God's justice. You see a picture of divine uh, justice in the response of um, Judge Rosemary Aquilina, who was presiding over the case. Here she's holding up this letter of excuses that Nasser has written and finally confronting him. She said, your decision, this is right before sentencing him to life plus in prison, your decision to assault was precise, calculated, devious, and despicable. As much as it was my honor and privilege to hear the survivors, it is my honor and privilege to sentence you. You have done nothing to control your urges. Anywhere you walk, destruction will occur to those most vulnerable. Justice Aquilina understood that the goal of judgment, the goal of justice, is to create a safe society. And God, as the moral governor of the universe, is also responsible for creating a safe society. And that's why there's such thing as a judgment. This is what we see in the sanctuary system. God takes injustice very seriously. One of the things that helped me the most as I was processing through this is a sermon <clears throat> actually by John Piper. I told you something bad, he said. Now I guess I should tell you something good. Um, and he said, every act of sin, every act of injustice <clears throat> meets a consequence. It, it's dealt with, it's punished either in the death of Christ or in the destruction of the wicked, which he thinks is eternal torment, but the Adventist version of this. Every act of injustice committed against you, committed against me, <clears throat> is acknowledged in the death of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he took every act of injustice specifically committed against us, and he said, that mattered, and it wasn't okay. And he faced God's wrath for that. And that validates what happens to the vulnerable, and it shows that they're important. There's no sins that simply s slip through the cracks. But also, oh, oh, and on that note, some of you may be familiar with the book, The Body Keeps the Score, about trauma, about how, how profoundly trauma can physiologically impact people. There's, a, there's an article called 
um, his body keeps the score, meaning Christ's body. What a beautiful thought that whatever trauma your body may have experienced, that your memory may have experienced, was actually um, included in the sufferings of Christ. His body keeps the score. And we also see, of course, in the crucifixion, that the acts of injustice, the acts of pain that we've committed against other people um, matter, that he valued those people, and yet that he loves us. So God is able to perfectly blend his mercy and his justice. Um, Finally, the uh, final puzzle piece that helped me understand and move through um, this experience was the idea of restitution. Now, legally, uh, the concept of restitution refers to perhaps when someone's been robbed or harmed in a certain way that they're paid back a certain amount, okay? God restores what we've lost, okay? So I used to think of heaven as a very generic place, um, kind of like Disneyland, or I mean, that's a bad metaphor, but like this amazing place, everyone's gonna love it, okay? And it is amazing, everyone's gonna love it. But I think of it in much, much less generic terms now. I think of it as like a very customized experience where God understands each individual mind and heart and experience, what we've gone through, what we've lost, what was missing, and has a very specific, very loving plan for how he's going to treat us in, the, in heaven and in the new earth. I read a quote in the Ministry of Healing where Ellen White's talking about the difficulties that God's children experience She says, for all that the world neglects to bestow, God himself will make up to us in the best of favors. And I think that's such a beautiful promise um, to know that God is so intimately acquainted with what we've specifically, what we specifically need, who we are, what we've lost. And that, um, you know, it's not just about the streets of gold. It's not just about the food. It's that there's going to be this very custom um, ministry uh, of love where the emotional resources that we need, the relational resources we need, are just going to be unleashed in a way that helps people heal. And um, when I think about this, it makes me think back to animal welfare. Um, I love looking at the before and after picture of rescue animals. So like on Instagram or Google rescue animals, you see these amazing transformations where people find pets that are suffering and they love on them and they give them what they need and the pets transform. So this is a picture of Sita who was found, actually they thought he was dead. He was extremely emaciated, diseased, his hair had fallen out um, and it's amazing that he was alive and they loved on him, they fed him, they gave him medicine, and uh, the picture on the right was taken about a year later, and it looks like a completely different dog, right? He's full of life, he has a full coat, perfectly normal and healthy dog. If human beings can find so much joy and meaning in helping broken animals 
and trying to restore to them what they've lost. How much more than the God who made us, who loves us, who's watched us with such compassion every day of our lives, look forward to giving us exactly what we need, to healing us in exactly all the ways that we need. And that's the heaven and the new earth that I look forward to. So, in closing, as all these different puzzle pieces came together for me, a better understanding of God's empathy for me, a more proper understanding of human emotion and what God calls us to in managing our emotions, um, a more robust understanding of free will and God's sovereignty, a more solid understanding of God's justice, and a more beautiful hope of the restitution and restoration that God had for me, I started to see a different picture when I processed my story and how God related to me. And I thought, wow, you couldn't, he couldn't be more loving, right? He couldn't be more loving to people that have been hurt. And anything that he's asking me to do, it's in love. I don't know if you can relate to my story or not, but I fear that all of us have greatly, grossly underestimated the, the love that God has for us, the, the, the compassion he has for us, the, the way we affect his emotions, the things he wants to give us the will that he has for our lives. All of us have distorted pictures of these things because of the things we've been through, because we live in a world where we so easily become deceived. So I hope that this message, in some way, has warmed your heart with a sense of God's love for you, has increased your desire to follow his will, and... For those of you who have been very hurt, has ministered to you and helped you to know that no one is more safe to bring that hurt to you than God. Thank you so much for listening. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.